Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Yeah, let's go. Man, get your Bible out and get to Exodus. Oh, I'm excited. Um, Guys, good morning. Our Providence Road campus, good morning. Uh, If you're new with us, we are one church meets in two locations so that we can take the gospel faithfully and effectively to the Charlotte area. You want to learn more about what we're about? We got starting point right after every service this morning. Uh, But we are getting into the book of Exodus, starting a new series we're calling Out of Egypt. Uh, You got on uh, your seat. I hope everybody got a chance to get one of these little booklets that's going to kind of have all of the scripture of this part of the series, truthfully, y'all, to go through Exodus. We're going to do this in like three or four volumes of sermons over the next couple of years. Uh, We'll be breaking it up, but volume one is all included in here, along with just a little guide on how to read the Bible, all right? So this can be for sermon notes, this can take it to community group, whatever. We just want you to be able to follow along. Um, As we dive in here, y'all, let me tell you, there is nothing in the Bible quite like the book of Exodus. I mean, it is, in fact, Exodus is the book that the rest of the Bible uses to draw our hearts back to the power of God and his faithful love for his people. And it's got some drama, all right? Like, even if you've never opened a Bible, we get that regularly around here, folks coming, checking out Mercy, maybe with some friends and kind of new to Christianity, the whole thing. I bet still you've heard of some of the stories that are in the book of Exodus, whether it's you think about the baby that gets put, little baby Moses gets put in the basket and sent down the Nile River, right? When all the kids are being slaughtered, or you think about the burning bush where Moses meets God, right? You think about Moses going into Egypt and saying, let my people go so that they may worship the one true God. Think about the 10 plagues, right? The frogs and the gnats and the river of blood, or maybe it's Passover, right? This is where, I mean, the Jewish community still celebrates Passover today that we're going to cover in Exodus 12 and we're going to look at, or maybe it's the parting of the Red Sea or the commandments, the golden calf, whatever it is. Y'all, I would actually say, depending on your age, you probably remember every scene that I just said through a certain cinematic lens, right? Because every Easter, every Easter weekend, uh, forever, some TV network would play Cecil B. DeMille's um, The Ten Commandments, right? And Moses Heston would come out and deliver this, let my people go. And I thought about doing the sermon in that voice, but I just don't have it. So um, that's what we're gonna do. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Amazon Prime, I looked it up. They actually have that movie. You can go watch it. It's gonna take you a minute, but it's awesome. If you're like, ah, I don't want Amazon Prime to take over the world. You can check out Mercy Prime. Um, that's our older adults uh, ministry. I'm sure they have it on VHS and would lend it to you. Um, it's just too easy sitting right there. Uh, it's not in the notes. That's just, just sitting there. Um, but I'll say this, this book is packed 
with some of the most intense accounts of God's work that you'll find everywhere. And the rest of the Bible is going to say, all of this is here for a purpose. To emphatically declare the power and love of the one true faithful God who by his strong hand delivers his people from bondage. If Genesis is the book of the creator, then Exodus is the book of the deliverer the faithful deliverer, and the rest of our lives. This is why it is here and why I've taken, we're we're like right in near our seventh year as a church and waited because I wanted us to be ready for this time in Exodus to remember for the rest of our lives the God who brought his people out of Egypt. That's actually getting to my main point today. What I want to do, like I say, uh, since we're going to be spending a considerable amount of time over the next few years in the book of Exodus, again, like I say, we'll spend from now until about mid-May in volume one, and then we'll come around next year to volume two. But um, I want to give you kind of an overview this morning on the themes of Exodus that are going to come out, all right? But the main point of my sermon today, and I think the main thing that we are drawn to over and over again in Exodus It's something that might sound familiar, but it's very important. Listen, the most important thing in your life is what you think about God. The most important thing in your life is what you think about God. We're going to meet a guy named Moses, and his biggest problem, we're going to see, he didn't think God was powerful enough to do what he said he was going to do. So he hesitated, he hedged, he waffled, he doubted. Israel, God's people, does the same thing. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, most powerful guy in the world, is going to get himself into trouble because he didn't believe this God was going to do what he said he was going to do. But yet, here's the beautiful thing about this book. Moses is our author. So here's Moses looking back on his own experience now as an old man, and he's writing this story with a big emphasis on the power of God and the faithful love of God to save his people. And he's writing so that you and I, that we will not make the same mistakes he did. We will see God in a way that took him far too long to see him. Because the most important thing in your life is how you think about God. Your idea of God, whether you realize it or not, it will set the trajectory for your friendships. That'll determine who your closest friends are. It'll determine who you spend your life. It'll determine your whole romantic life. It'll determine your career, not only what career you step into, but whether that career consumes you or it has its proper place in your life. Your idea of God will determine how you parent your kids. It'll determine your involvement in church. Ultimately, it will determine where you spend eternity after you die. It is the most important thing in your life. And the reason a lot of Christians don't experience God's power to change their lives is because their God is too small to do that. I mean, I haven't, they have this thought, I haven't seen God in a burning bush. I haven't seen God turn a river uh, from water into blood. In fact, I became a Christian and I haven't seen my life change all that much at all. So in abstract, sure, yes, he's big, but in reality, he must either be uninterested or unable to change my life. That's also true about churches. In fact, this guy named A.W. Tozer, one of my top five, like, most impactful books in my life. It's a tiny little book called Knowledge of the Holy. And in there, he says, the most important thing about a church is what it thinks about God. And the reason a lot of churches don't experience power, don't see lives changed or communities reached, don't see healing and redemption, is because they don't actually believe God can do those things. So they go through the motions of religion apart from expecting God to move. Because they don't think that he will. And y'all, what, I, what I'm praying here 
What I hope God does through our study of Exodus is to rattle the dust off of our hearts and off of our church and enlarge our view and expectancy of God. To believe in his power to deliver, to act in expectancy that the God who brought Israel out of slavery, who also brought Jesus out of the grave, is going to keep bringing dead people to life still today. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm just excited. Um, I want us to go um, into chapter 6 of Exodus this morning. We're going to cover the first nine verses of Exodus 6 because I think it actually, we'll do that again in like a few weeks when we get to chapter 6, but I think this little moment here between Moses and the Lord captures the themes that I wanted to draw out for us. Um, And I think I'm going to draw out five themes. That's going to depend on how much time we have. Um, But the good news is, we got a lot of time in Exodus, so we'll get more uh, if they don't. But each one is trying to enlarge what we think about God, because that's the most important thing in your life. All right, Exodus 6, verse 1. You ready? Yeah. Let's go. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. The strong hand is not Pharaoh's hand. Strong hand is God's hand. And this first theme may be so familiar, but how much we need this reminder. First theme in the book of Exodus that's very loud and clear. God is the one in control. God's the one in control. I was just trying to decide whether or not to say that in that form because it's so familiar. And some of you haven't been in a church in a long time, maybe ever, and you don't want just some bumper sticker platitude, and I don't want that either. But what if, what if we have let a mighty truth become so familiar that it's lost its power? See, God says to Moses, here's what you're about to see. The most powerful person on earth, Pharaoh, the strongest person that exists on the planet, is about to be controlled by someone stronger. And this Pharaoh, who nobody ever tells what to do, Moses, I'm going to even go ahead and tell you what I'm going to tell him and make him do. And here's what happens. Every plague that comes through happens just like he said they would. Pharaoh's response to the plagues happens just like he said it would. The Passover happens just like he said it would. The Red Sea parts just like he said it would. The Red Sea closes back just like he said it would. And the rest of the Bible is going to say that God, the God of Exodus, he's still in control. He was in control when Elijah was surrounded by 450 prophets of Baal. He was in control when he shrunk Gideon's army all the way down to 300. And he was in control to help Gideon realize he didn't even need a single one of those 300. He was in control when Jonah went into the whale and when Daniel went into the lion's den. He was in control when he made the wind cease and the fig tree wither and the demons flee and the lame walk. He was in control when Jesus was arrested. The Lord was in control when he was beaten, whipped, crucified, and killed. And when Jesus lay dead in the grave, God was still fully in control. God was in control when Jesus was brought back to life. God was in control when the Spirit rushed in at Pentecost. The Lord was in control when Saul oversaw the stoning of Stephen for preaching the gospel. The Lord was in control when Saul became Paul. When the persecutor became the persecuted, God was in control. He was in control when John sat in prison on the island of Patmos and received a vision of the end of days where we who believe the gospel will gather around the throne in a worship-filled wedding feast together. He's been in control of all of that. He's been in control in your life. He's been in control in mine. 
He was in control when he gave me four beautiful, wonderful children. He was in control when he took one away in miscarriage. He was in control in our church when people have been diagnosed with cancer and then they've gone into remission. He has been in control when people have been diagnosed with cancer, gone into remission, and then relapsed back, and then we lost them. He was still in control. He has always been. He's been in control when you got the job. He's been in control when you didn't get the job. When you found the one that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, and then when that very one betrayed you and left, he was still in control. He's always been in control. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God, like I said, will rattle the dust off of our hearts and revive a spirit of peace-filled joy because as you look at your day today and tomorrow, an old truth is roaring back with fresh power, and that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still in control. He's still in control. World superpowers are not in control. Multinational media corporations are not in control. Agenda-driven cancel mobs are not in control. The God of justice, the God of righteousness, the God of redemption, the God of Moses, that God is still in control. And he knows you. He knows you and he loves you. Knows the hairs on your head. Cares for you. The most important thing in your life is what you think about God. Do you believe he is actively in control of everything happening in your life? Because there is freedom in releasing that control and trusting him with it. Let's go to verse 2. I'm going to read you two through five. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. There's a second theme I want you to see as we go through here. We got to relate to God on his terms and not ours. We relate to God on his terms, not ours. A common theme you'll encounter, especially in our first 12 to 13 chapters, we'll see in this series if we get to 13 or not, uh, is God telling Moses who he is. And then Moses just goes over to Israel and Pharaoh and recites it. This is who he is. And right here is the first time when, when you saw up in verse uh, three, he said, I appear to them as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. That, when he says the Lord right there, that's Yahweh. It's the first time that's introduced here in the book of Exodus. It's right here in chapter six. And it was introduced a couple of times in Genesis, one to Abraham and one to Jacob, when God explained his covenant, his promise that he was going to keep with his people. Um, listen, it's on this basis of who he is. This is important. It's because of who he is that he does what he does. And we're to to find our identity in who he is. Verse 6, therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. And tell the Israelites first who I am, then what I'm going to do. I can't tell you how critical this is going to be. First, you relate to God for who he is, not just what he'll do for you. All right? This is massive. All right. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. What they really need to know is that he's the Lord. That's the information they need. In fact, we'll see in chapter 3, when God calls Moses to be his deliverer, Moses says, 
well, um, who should I say that you are when I go in there? And in Exodus 3.14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. There's a um, wonderful observation that Jen Wilkin makes um, about this interaction with um, Moses and the Lord. It's in her book, Women of the Word, where she's talking about how to study the Bible. She says, you know, when he gets this vision of God to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of his captives, Moses gets a little self-conscious, right? If you go into Exodus 3, he says, God says, I am, Moses goes, well, um, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of, children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses is looking at himself. Well, rather than God answering Moses, oh, Moses, you are my chosen servant. You are my precious creation, a gifted and wise leader. God responds to Moses' question, who am I? (laughs) By completely removing Moses from the subject of the discussion and just inserting himself. He answers Moses' self-focused question, who am I? With the only answer that matters, I am. And y'all, we're like Moses. We got this Bible that really is our burning bush kind of moment, a faithful declaration of the presence and holiness of God. And we ask it, here's what we do. We come to it and we ask it to tell us about ourselves. And all the while, it's telling us about I am. We think if it would just tell us who we are and what we should do, then our insecurities, fears, and doubts, then they would vanish. But our insecurities, fears, and doubts can never be banished by the knowledge of who we are. They can only be banished by the knowledge of the I am. Now, does this mean the Bible has nothing to say about who we are? No, not at all. We just go about trying to answer the question backwards. The Bible does tell us who we are, what we should do, but it does so through the lens of who God is. And Moses learns during the Exodus who he was, who Moses was, bore no impact on the outcome of the situation. Who God was is the one that made all the difference. What you think about God is the most important thing in your life. He's the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is I am, the one who is always present tense, the one who cannot be fully captured in words. He's powerful, faithful to his promise to his people. He is, and we get to meet him afresh in the book of Exodus. Look at verse 7. He says, I'll take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Let me say it again. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites But they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. It's the next theme I want you to grab hold of in the book of Exodus. Circumstances are not saviors. What we will see next week is that the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, our context, was once the land of salvation for God's people. There was a huge drought in their homeland, and by a series of circumstances that are just a whole other sermon series, the faithful God who is in control brought Israel to the fertile land of Egypt where they flourished and grew in number. Their circumstance improved. But then, the very circumstance that was good got bad. In fact, it got really bad. 
And the circumstances go from bad to worse like three times. They become enslaved. Then their children start getting killed. And then the one guy who looks like he can do something about it royally screws up and has to flee to the countryside. And yet in these circumstances, what we'll see is God is working salvation for his people so that they can worship him. Exodus 8.1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go for a reason, not just to change their circumstance. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Here's what happens. He brings them out of slavery. That's what we're going to see. It's incredible. But it's for a purpose. It's for worship. Salvation isn't just from circumstance. It's for worship. Here's what will happen. Here's what happens. They're going to get into the wilderness, free from Egypt, but then they're going to take their eyes and hearts off of God, and they're going to start grumbling and complaining, so much so that they're going to wish that they were, they're going to audibly say, we wish we were back in slavery. Exodus flips, this is what's so great to me, Exodus flips the current pop culture idea of freedom on its head, reveals its insufficiency. Because the only way we can truly be free people is not just to be liberated from something. And man, that seems to be the tone of everything in pop culture. Just get free from all these labels and everything. Just get free from it, free from it, free from it. No. The only way to be truly free is not just to be liberated from something, but to be liberated to something. If we do not give ourselves to God, we will, I promise you, continue to treat our circumstances like our Savior. Blessings, salvation, salvation from circumstances, blessings will become burdens. And our false gods will be revealed just like they were in Exodus. Listen, church, if God is comfort circumstances will be the Savior. Now, here's how you know that your God is comfort. It's when you praise God when your circumstances are good and when you blame God when your circumstances are bad. It's when you're afraid to ask God for things because you don't want to be disappointed or angry if you don't get them. Circumstances are not saviors. The purpose of Exodus is worship. Now, bring this out because, y'all, our 21st century Western minds are trained I mean, so deep to believe that circumstances are saviors. Jobs, relationships, even churches, if one's going bad, get out and just go to the next thing. And the next thing isn't your deliverer. The next thing can't be your God. If it is, comfort is actually your God, not the God of the Bible. Told you the most important thing in your life is what you think about God. Does your view of God leave room for bad circumstances? Can you try to get pregnant for five years, finally get pregnant, lose the child in miscarriage, and still worship the Lord as faithful? I'm not saying pain isn't real. I'm asking, is your God, God, still even in your pain? Can your parents let you down? Your spouse cheat on you? Your friends abandon you? Lose a loved one? Can these things still happen and you still worship the Lord as faithful? Because the Lord does not promise us comfort. He, in fact, he does promise suffering. But just like he was with Israel in their slavery, he was with Israel in the Exodus, with them in the wilderness, and with his people now. He's not the God of comfort. He's the God of presence. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the Lord your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. He's that God. 
who possesses his people, not the God of circumstances. He is I am. His aim is not your comfort. His aim is your worship. Because in your worship of him, that's where, here's the thing, y'all. When comfort is our God, we're looking for rest. We are. And it never gives it. It teases it and never delivers it. But when it's in your worship of him that your soul actually finds true rest. That's why he's going to make such a big deal that you worship him. It's because that's where your soul finds actual rest. Not this fake idea of rest that gets put out on Instagram where if you can get the latest ad that'll get you, you know, a deal for $49 to go out to some nice beach with blue water and then finally you'll have rest. Not saying those things are wrong. I'm saying a circumstance is not going to give your soul true rest. Which, by the way, is why weekly worship is so crazy important for us here at our church. If the most important thing in your life is what you think about God, then arguably the most important time in your week is when the saints gather for worship. Because we're reminded of who he really is. The voices of the others singing remind us that he's still working. We see baptisms, we take communion, and we're reminded that this active God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still working in people's lives. Maybe we've been doubting that week. That's why we're so careful with things like song selection, service planning. The goal is to lift our eyes above our circumstances and to celebrate the one true God again. It's not a show. It's a gathering of spirit-filled believers expecting to be moved by God's spirit as we offer a sacrifice of praise together. I say that, let me just say, do you, I know some of you are watching online, you have been for a couple of years now, and we're glad to offer this to you, but we are praying and longing for you to be back among the believers again, because there's a whole lot that happens experiencing the presence of God with one another that can't happen in isolation. We love you, but we want you here. Uh, all right, one more theme, maybe two, eh. um, here we go. The next one that we see, as, as we're going to see Moses go on, is that Exodus points to our need for Jesus. Exodus is just going to point over and over to our need for Jesus. And y'all, really, this is the most important theme. What's going to become evident as we walk through is that it is a foreshadowing, especially, particularly Moses, is a foreshadowing of the one true Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. The gospel authors go over and above to make sure we see the connection uh, as they tell us about who Jesus is. They show us how Jesus is like Moses, time and again, things like um, Moses. His, just like Moses, Jesus' life was threatened as an infant boy when the tyrant king ordered the firstborn males to be killed. Like Moses, Jesus was sent by God from a faraway land to deliver God's people from bondage. Moses leads the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus leads the 12 disciples. Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God, takes three companions. Jesus does the same. Both come down the mountain with their faces shining with the glory of God. And both, when they do, are greeted by a confused generation. Moses and Israel are tempted three times while in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted three times in the wilderness. Moses performs these miracles before saving his people. Jesus does the same. The night before his saving work, he has a meal with God's people called the Passover. Jesus celebrated Passover with the disciples the night before his saving work. At Passover, God creates a covenant where the sons of Israel are spared death because a sacrificial lamb was offered in their place. 
at the Last Supper, Jesus creates the new covenant where followers of Jesus are spared eternal death because of the sacrificial lamb offering himself up in their place. The blood of Christ covers them. God puts one man, Moses, up on a high place and tells him to stretch out his arms. And through that action, God parts the waters of the Red Sea to deliver his people. And then God delivers Moses up out of the Red Sea. Does this look familiar, right? This is a portrait of Christ. And then God rolls the stone away, just like he parted the Red Sea and delivers Jesus up from death. In Luke 9, 31, Jesus goes up on the mountain and has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And literally in the Greek, it says they were talking about Jesus's exodus to come in the days ahead. None of those aren't all in chronological order, and I didn't even get half of them. We'll see a lot more of them. But the point the New Testament makes clear is that Christ is to be compared to Moses. Yet while they are similar, Exodus will show us that Moses, who is, I mean, the greatest Savior that the Old Testament has to offer, Moses fails God's people. He fails early in life. We'll see it next week. He fails again in the wilderness. He's even unable to enter the promised land because of it. And what we're left seeing at the end of Exodus is that a better Savior than Moses is needed. Moses' liberation, y'all, it's great, but it's only a social and political liberation for one group of people. And it pointed to a much greater liberation that was coming in Christ, a liberation for all people. In fact, you start to see um, seeds of it. This is a whole other theme. It's not going to be one of our things because I didn't put it on the screen. But there's a whole other theme about how this deliverance is actually a salvation for all people because you start to see them graft in some of the Egyptians and others as they make their, way, make their way out, which matches the covenant that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which said, I'm going to be and make a nation among all nations. You will be a people of all peoples and all peoples will be blessed through you. And we start to see it happen in Exodus. It's a whole other theme on the mission of God that we're going to get into this time. But listen, while this pointed so much to this great liberation, uh, this coming in Christ, which you got to remember, <laughs> you can't serve God. You can't have freedom to worship God. You can't trust God in those hard times if you don't know the one that they're pointing to, if you don't know Christ. It's only when you believe with your whole heart, whole mind, that he died for you to give you and I freedom from bondage and sin and freedom to worship God that you'll begin to believe he's still for you. He's still there for you. And you'll start to notice when you get there, your reaction to hard times will start to change. You won't be as quick to despair and despair won't run as deep. Over time, you'll find yourself not even despairing at all. In fact, this amazing thing will happen. If you'll lean into and lean on to Christ over time, you'll start to lean into suffering as an opportunity to know him better. But you got to turn to Jesus. And when you do, you'll find a freedom in this life you can never have otherwise. That's the last theme I want to tell you, hopefully a very freeing one. Last theme of Exodus we're going to see, you are not the Savior. Praise the Lord. You're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. Listen, sometimes when we read Old Testament narratives, we put ourselves in the main sandals or shoes of the, you know, main character, right? That's Okay. In some places, that's, in fact, we've already done that. We're going to do that throughout this series some. We're going to learn from Moses. We're going to learn to emulate his faith. We're going to learn to avoid 
his mistakes. We're going to draw some of those things out as we look at his life. But Moses is a type of savior pointing us to Jesus, the greater savior. So our place in this story, massively important as you read Exodus, our place in the story is not as Moses, the savior, it's as Israel, the helpless enslaved people that need a savior. That's who we are. When you understand you're not the savior, it's going to humble you and then it's going to free you. Because you don't have to be Moses. You don't have to be, you don't have to be Moses for anybody in your life. You don't have to be Jesus for anybody in your life. Earlier, I told you God is in control, not you. You're not in control, but that's good because you're not the Savior. You're not God. You would make a terrible God. Some of you have tried more than the rest of us, and it's why you have so much frustration, pain, and angst and anxiety in your life. You're not morally perfect, but that's okay because you're not God. You're not the savior. You're going to mess up in your grades, your job, your parenting, your romance, and everything else you do. But great, such great news for you. You're not the savior. You, know, you can either be the savior or be in need of one. You don't have to be perfect. You can't be in there. some serious freedom to like exhale and rest in that. And that freedom, when you really know it, will cause you, it'll lead you to worship. To worship the one who is the savior. And then to rest in his grace. The most important thing in your life is what you think about God. He is in control, but we got to relate to him on his terms, not ours. Circumstances are not saviors, and neither are you. And this whole thing we're going to see, the whole thing is about Jesus. I can think of no better way to kind of prepare ourselves for this journey through Exodus than to take communion together. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, for both of our campuses. I'm going to pray for us. Um, and then I believe Pastor Jake's going to lead us at Providence Road, and I'll lead us here through the taking of communion. As I go to pray, if you did not get the elements, you can make your way um, to the back and grab those, and then we'll, uh, we'll take it together. But let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. I don't say it enough. Father, thank you that we are not the Savior, but you are. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that we can't know all of you. <laughs> you are the I am. God, thank you that you are with us and circumstances do not dictate or determine your love for us. Thank you for Jesus, who we celebrate as we take communion. Thank you, Father. God, I pray that this time in Exodus would be for your glory, your name. We love you. We praise you in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Amen.